Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're going to talk about the stress response in neuroendocrinology with Andrew Heyman, MD, Medical Director of our Integrative Medicine programs here at GW. Dr. Heyman is an internationally recognized expert on integrative medicine. His research interests include the stress response in neuroendocrinology, cardiometabolic disease, men's health, and clinical outcome research methodologies. Welcome back to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Heyman. Thanks, Janet. It's a pleasure to be here. Stress, does it matter? (laughs) It's an excellent question. And of course it matters. Um, it, it matters because it happens in our everyday lives. And it also matters because it's actually one of the oldest systems in the body. It was originally designed to keep us alive under times of threat. Um, obviously, we've, we've evolved, and those sorts of threats uh, from physical harm have uh, reduced significantly uh, due to the advancement in you know, human culture. Uh, but at the same time, the system is still active and still participates in um, all aspects of our, our lives because it constantly is surveilling uh, what might be a threat. The problem is, is that uh, we don't have so many physical threats anymore. We tend to have more emotional and psychological threats. Um, and sort of the modern lifestyle lends itself to a certain kind of uh, stress that still impacts our health. Uh, so I think it's incredibly important to understand as a topic, and one, unfortunately, that actually gets overlooked within modern medicine. Why do you think that is? You know, I think it's, um, we probably could trace that back to even Descartes in the 17th century when we split the mind from the body. And the um, priests and then later on psychologists uh, would sort of inhabit the domain of mind um, and certainly we have talk therapy that's oriented towards dealing with issues of stress and developing coping skills and emotional resiliency. Uh, But within the medical community, we've by and large sort of ignored the physiologic components of the stress response and how they interplay with our ability to emotionally be resilient under times of stress. Um, In the integrative medicine world, uh, we tend to uh, provide more focus on how the body itself responds to stress. Although I think we've raised the issue appropriately, uh, we use a term that I'm not very fond of uh, called adrenal fatigue. And it's the notion that uh, when people have overwhelming stress, the body itself can begin to break down. Um, And so even though we provide some attention to the topic, I think that until we better understand the interrelationships of the physiologic components of the stress response, um, we tend to miss, I think, some important features of how to protect our patients against ongoing stress. And there are actually very good strategies uh, to do that. So moving forward, I think while the psychologists um, do a good job on the sort of cognitive and behavioral side of the stress response, we on the medical side have not done nearly as good of a job. And it's really only the integrative community that has provided any attention whatsoever to a topic that I think is incredibly important for 
just about every clinical condition. Instead of adrenal fatigue, what terminology should people be using and why? You know, that's a great question. Uh, when When you look in the literature... Um, there are sort of two related terms that um, underlie or represent some of the abnormalities that we see in the stress response. And so let me go through very quickly the components, the physical components of um, the the stress response itself. And for me, it all begins in the brain. Um, Originally, we would talk about solely the HPA axis, which stands for hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal. And the hypothalamus and pituitary are two areas of the brain that help to moderate and control the stress response. And the pituitary in particular sends signals to the adrenals, which are two nutmeg-type glands that sit on top of the kidneys. And the adrenals produce cortisol, which is our stress hormone. So under most circumstances then, when we sense stress, um, that sensing mechanism is occurring through the brain And it tells the adrenals to produce cortisol. And this is thought to be an adaptive mechanism because cortisol cortisol does some very important things for us. Um, And most of that, though, happens within what is often um, thought to be more of a physical harm or threat. So when you think about what cortisol does in the body, it improves peripheral vision. It improves short-term memory. It increases cardiac output. It shunts blood to the skeletal muscle tissue, and it also turns off certain systems in the body that aren't really needed under times of physical threat. So, for example, uh, cortisol will begin to downregulate digestion because, of course, we don't need to digest food when we're running away from a tiger. It also tends to suppress our reproductive hormones because, of course, we don't really need to procreate when we're under times of stress. And so there's all these adaptive functions that occur as a result of cortisol upregulating under times of stress. And so with all of that being said, then, um, when cortisol goes up, the terminology in the literature is called hypercortisolism, the notion that cortisol levels are higher than normal. We can also find instances when cortisol levels are inappropriately low. And that term is hypocortisolism. And I think those are more appropriate terms in the setting of identifying abnormalities within the stress response. Now, what type of damage is being done when, when all of this happens? That's a, another good question. I think this is where I depart from this notion of adrenal fatigue. So one thing to understand about cortisol is that it is among other things, classified as a catabolic hormone. And what that really means is cortisol has the ability to break down or degrade bodily tissue. And that often happens in a more accelerated fashion where you find high concentrations of cortisol receptors. And it turns out that even though we often talk about the HPA axis, and to remind you the H means hypothalamus, there's another H that is even more important than the hypothalamus in terms of regulating the stress response. And this is an area that's right next to the hypothalamus, and it's called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus, among other things, is really the crossroads of the stress response. And it's also important for short-term memory 
and specifically the emotions attached to memory. So it assigns importance to memories. And that makes sense because you want to be able to easily recall if that tiger is a threat, that we assign a value to a certain memory. It turns out that the hippocampus has the highest concentrations of cortisol receptors of any area in the brain. And its role then is to not only start to ignite and turn on under times of stress because it becomes saturated in cortisol and it helps to consolidate those important memories, but also it sends signals directly into the HPA axis to help modulate and even downregulate excess HPA activity. So the hippocampus acts as a circuit breaker for the stress response. But here's the rub. Everybody has a cut point where there is too much stress and too much cortisol that's been saturating that poor little hippocampus. And what we see under early times of stress is the hippocampus starts to swell and grow and enlarge because cortisol is stimulating its activity. But over time, because cortisol is a catabolic hormone, the hippocampus starts to break down and shrink and shrivel. And there's what we call volume loss, that the hippocampus becomes smaller over time. And this is due to direct damage by cortisol. When this starts to happen, we see an unregulated HPA axis. And as a result, cortisol levels can end up being too high. But the brain senses that the hippocampus is starting to change and other areas take control called the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the locus ceruleus, and other areas. And it starts to send input into the HPA axis to turn down cortisol production. And so the brain is basically saying, hey, enough is enough. Too much cortisol. The hippocampus is beginning to shrink. So let's protect itself from the ravages of excess cortisol production. So people go from a high cortisol state to a low cortisol state. And this is called the neurodegenerative model of hypocortisolism, meaning the brain is starting to change under times of stress. And to protect itself, it begins to turn down the body's ability to make cortisol. There's a wonderful researcher, his name is Bruce McEwen, out of Rockefeller University. And he, for many years, has been articulating this progression from high cortisol states to low cortisol states mediated through brain-related changes. And here's the problem. When people end up in a low cortisol state, they tend to report higher levels of symptoms of sickness. And it also means that in, under most circumstances, the brain has changed maybe even to the point where there's a true injury that's not recoverable. So make no mistake, there's a category of people who've had overwhelming stress who've damaged their brains. That is scary because I used to work with a lot of people who had daily overwhelming stress. That's right. And it would explain, it ex it would explain a lot. Um, that, that's right. And even worse, and, and cortisol, you have to understand, not only has a lot of receptors in the brain, but because it's one of these central regulating hormones, there are cortisol receptors all over the body. And maybe as importantly as cortisol's impact on the brain, there are also many cortisol receptors in the immune system. 
And think about this. Cortisol is also considered the main break on the immune response. This is why we brought prednisone to market as a, quote, anti-inflammatory, because prednisone is basically a derivative of cortisol. So when cortisol levels are high, among other things, the immune system is centrally suppressed. We see lower levels of inflammation and related inflammatory compounds, such as IL-6, TNF-alpha, and CRP. So when we're under high states of stress, not only does the body not want to digest or reproduce, we actually suppress the immune system temporarily as a result of that high cortisol level, that hypercortisolism. Now think about this. Let's say you have someone who you knew who was under lots of stress, stress and their brain said, enough is enough. I'm turning down the HPA axis to prevent further damage to the brain and further damage to the rest of the body. Okay, fine. So that person ends up in a low cortisol state or technically hypocortisolism. Janet, guess what happens to your immune system? Without the break, with a functionally low cortisol level, the immune system is liberated. And it means that those individuals have higher baseline levels of inflammation. And we know inflammation stands at the center of many chronic illnesses. We now understand that patients in hypocortisol states not only report worsened symptoms compared to patients with high cortisol levels, but they also have worse clinical outcomes if they have concurrent diseases. Meaning, if you have a patient who, let's say, has breast cancer and she has a flattened cortisol curve, low cortisol output, because of the higher levels of inflammation, she will tend to have a greater chance for metastases and mortality compared to those women who have a normal cortisol curve. If you have a patient who has low cortisol and concurrent heart disease, they tend to have higher rates of MI, meaning a heart attack, and dying from that heart attack. If you have patients that are depressed, we know patients with high cortisol levels respond better to antidepressants versus those patients who have low cortisol levels. They don't respond as well. Why? Because they're more inflamed and their brains are inflamed. We also know patients who have diabetes and low cortisol typically require more medications and respond more poorly to therapeutic intervention compared to those patients who have normal cortisol levels. It is amazing to me. There is so much research on changes within the HPA axis, especially related to low cortisol levels due to alterations in the brain and how that increases risk for all sorts of diseases. And yet, quite frankly, we never measure it. And I also tend to get a little frustrated when we only use the term adrenal fatigue as if to say overwhelming stress leads to low adrenal output. It really doesn't. What we're really saying is low cortisol is tied mostly to brain-related changes, and there are true clinical consequences for these shifts in cortisol. I think it's so central for primary care, for endocrinology, for cardiology, for psychiatry. If you look more recently in the psychiatric literature, they're beginning to recognize that patients' self-report of depression in the context of an altered HPA axis really matters in terms of therapeutic outcomes. We should, for example, be, I think, testing cortisol 
routinely in our patients and making clinical decisions that in part rely on um, the stance of the stress response. And again, all roads lead to the brain. You know, when you look at these um, brain MRI studies and functional MRI studies, we know that people who've had overwhelming stress, they have very small hippocampi. And we know that's related to PTSD and a history of emotional trauma, also more metabolic problems like Cushing syndrome, where the patient, um, patient's body makes too much cortisol and so the hippocampus shrinks. And that this volume loss in the hippocampus is so critical for loss of regulation of the stress response. We have good ways of measuring cortisol and we have relatively good interventions now, although I think the data needs to grow uh, in terms of treating this. But it is such a central phenomenon for people every day, we tend to overlook it. What are some of the interventions? So that, that's a good um, question as well. So um, what's interesting to me is when you look at integrative therapies that were directed at the stress response, one category in particular, uh, which I think um, we, we, we tend to use but not really understand why, are botanicals. And it turns out that every herbal system around the world, whether it's from China or Japan or India or Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia, they all have a couple herbs that were always considered magical and even unique in their ability to protect the, quote, vitality of the individual. And when you look at these herbs, they're all relatively similar and they fall into a classification that we call adaptogens. And these adaptogens help the individual adapt to stress. They don't only work in one direction, they work in multiple directions physiologically to protect the integrity and support the homeostasis of the patient. And these are herbs that um, um, are all somewhat similar in how they function, and there's only a handful of them, and they um, are called ginseng from China, cordyceps from Japan, maca from Southeast Asia, uricoma as well from Southeast Asia, rhodiola from Eastern Europe, um, ashwagandha from India, which we call our Indian ginseng. And interestingly, when practitioners recommend these herbs, they think that they're protecting the adrenals. They don't. They don't. Instead, when you look at the research on their pharmacological activity, what's fascinating to me is they all work in the brain and they all blunt cortisol's effect on the hippocampus. They reduce neuroexcitation and some of them even encourage regeneration that in fact potentially they have the ability to help repair the injury that we can see to the brain. So in addition to botanicals, then, these special adaptogens, um, there's other research to suggest that mindfulness and contemplative practices, such as breathing techniques, also protect the brain under times of stress. And even exercise has been shown in a few studies to enhance the size of the hippocampus, that people who exercise routinely are protected against stress and they have larger hippocampi than their controls. So moving, breathing, having positive lifestyle and thoughts, and taking special things like these adaptogens can go a long way to encouraging a healthy stress response and potentially even, even um, supporting repair 
if necessary. Well, Dr. Heyman, it's always enlightening to talk to you about these topics. And I have a bunch of other questions, but I think this is all the time we have for today. Thanks, Janet. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. All right. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Janet Rodriguez. Be well. Be well.